Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And it is my pleasure and privilege to be able to welcome you to worship this morning, both here in person and if you're worshiping with us through the live stream, we are thrilled you have chosen to worship with us this morning. If you're visiting in person this morning, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. We hope you got the goodie bag out front, lets you know a little bit about us, and you have some nice souvenirs to take home as well. And if everyone, if you're on the end of the row, start that friendship pad going down the row, lets us know that you're here uh, and helps us in terms of our building a relationship with you. A uh, couple of brief announcements as we enter into worship. Of course, we're coming to the Lord's table later this morning, so hopefully and prayerfully our hearts are prepared as Christ feeds us this morning from his table. Next Sunday, a congregational meeting has been called. It's December 19th. It will be immediately following the worship service, and I'm reading directly out of the announcement here. The purpose of the meeting is to consider a proposal from the Georgia Department of Transportation to purchase a small parcel of land needed to widen Route 44. As you will recall, as part of the transaction to sell the five-acre parcel to a developer last August, we retained ownership of the access road off of 44 to the strip mall and the Lutheran Church. The Georgia Department of Transportation has made an offer to purchase a small portion of that road. The Board of Trustees of LOPC has considered the proposal, found it to be a good and fair offer, and is placing a motion before the membership for approval. And so that is the purpose of this called congregational meeting next Lord's Day, the 19th, immediately following the worship service. And hopefully we have a quorum. We need as many of you as possible to come and not just come for worship, but stay for the meeting. And then Christmas Eve service, December 24th, we will be meeting both in person and live stream. December 24th at 5 p.m. in the sanctuary, a wonderful opportunity to invite family, to invite friends. We hope you all can make that and plan to bring others with you. Friends, this morning is the third Sunday of Advent as we anticipate the coming of Christ and as we, kind of as I've been sharing in our Advent devotions, both have the opportunity to look back upon the first Advent of Christ and look forward to his coming advent, his second coming in victory and in glory. This morning I have asked Bill and Lucianne McCartney if they would read the scripture and light the third advent candle. Good morning. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. 
Our Father, thank you that you are our salvation. May we be a people who with joy continually draw from the wells of salvation. Your name truly is exalted. We sing praises to you, and we pray that your fame will be made known in all the earth. May we make your greatness known in our lives in both word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen. Olivia, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for leading us in worship. We rejoice with you. Friends, God has called us to worship this morning, and our call to worship is from Psalm 95, verses 1 to 3. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Lord, thank you that you have borne witness and testimony to yourself by calling your people to worship this morning. We ask, Father, that you would be present with us. We invoke your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to join with us that we may declare your glory, that we may make a joyful noise to you with songs of praise that we may rejoice in you, our Savior and our King, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Friends, I invite you now to stand as we sing together, O Come, All Ye Faithful. <clears throat>
Come, let us adore him. We continue to declare God's glory by confessing our faith together. Our confession of faith this morning is the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. I will read the question and then we will in unison give the answer. Friends, what is your only comfort in life and death? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let's continue to worship standing and singing together. Go tell it on the mountain.
As we continue to worship this morning, we have the amazing privilege of approaching God's throne of grace, grace and mercy to help us in our time of need, whatever that may be. We will first together pray the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Friends, let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we praise you for who you are, for your character of love and mercy, grace and compassion, your goodness to us, your sovereignty, your majesty. You are the great king above all the earth. And yet you are our tender father who provides and protects and guides us. Lord, we're gathered today, and may we hallow and set apart your name as holy. May we praise who you are. May we long for your kingdom, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we are dependent upon you for everything. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, but we are reliant upon you for all our needs, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, in every way. And this morning, I think of the victims of the tornado that racked through the South and the Midwest. I think of the folks of Illinois and Mayfield, Kentucky, how they will be rebuilding their lives, how those who have lost lives, their families, their friends, their loved ones will be mourning and grieving. Father, we ask that you would raise up the church to be a mighty witness manifesting and demonstrating your love and your mercy to them. And we pray for them in the recovery that they will be doing. Lord, we think of our own body, and we pray, Father, for Emma Anderson, who is continuing to recover from surgery, for Maxine Ward, as she has returned home from the hospital, for Susan Atkins. We are thankful, Father, that her accident wasn't worse, and we pray that you will bless her recovery. We pray for Kent and Suzanne Schumacher's daughter, Kayla, the pacemaker she will be getting this Tuesday, and pray, Father, that you will be with her and with Kent and Suzanne during this procedure. We thank you that we can rest and trust in you. I think of those words out of Isaiah, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. So teach us as a people to trust you to seek you for forgiveness and restoration, to forgive others and be a forgiving people, to be a gracious community. And Lord, we pray for our own holiness, that we will not be led into temptation, but delivered from all evil and delivered from the evil one who would seek our destruction, the one who <laughs> seeks to kill and steal and destroy. But we're mindful of Jesus who came to give life and give it to its fullness. We praise you, Father, that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. And we thank you for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you have given us your word because you love us. We praise you that although the grass withers and the flower fades, your word, the word of the Lord, will endure forever. It will accomplish what you have set out for it to accomplish. And so, Lord, here we are as your children, your family, your servants. May we said, as Mary said, behold, may it be done to me according to your word. So open our hearts. Enlarge our minds. Give us the ability to hear, have ears to hear, and to surrender to your word and to your will for our lives individually and corporately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to Isaiah chapter 61. We are looking at a text of Scripture this morning in our Advent leading up to Christmas sermon series that I'm calling Hope according to Isaiah. And so again, these narratives, some of them can be a little lengthy, so you have to, I'd say bear with me, but I didn't write this. This is God's word. So bear with God, right? Pay attention as we hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning at verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord." They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation." He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God 
will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. I want you to picture something in your mind. I got this particular illustration in this story from a man by the name of Greg Thompson, who was formerly a PCA pastor in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he says, I want you to imagine a woman. Let's say she lived sometime between the second century and the 16th century, so a broad sweep of history. Let's say she lived somewhere, generally speaking, in the region of the Mediterranean. She could have lived as far south as northern Africa. She could have lived as far east as modern-day Iraq. She could live as far north as France or even England and Scotland and as far west as modern Spain. Now, I want you to imagine, to picture that, that she is out of some terrible necessity, obliged to make her way on a journey across the remoteness of that world. She's alone. She leaves whatever shelter is hers. She wraps herself in a cloak or cloth, and she steps out into the dark, into this lonely and restless wind. Can you see her? Can you picture her? And as she stepped out onto her path, And as she bends her long and lonely course towards whatever town or village or city held her hopes, in all likelihood, she spent her day scanning the horizon for one thing. Do you know what that one thing is? A church. See, sometimes these churches were huge cathedrals. They rose up in stone and they were filled with light. Sometimes they were small little parishes tucked away and in roads. Sometimes they were monasteries tucked behind walls, but filled with joy and song. But no matter what kind of church, large or small, rural or city they were, all of them shared a common mission, a common vocation, and here's what it was, to be the faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world in their time. And that's why she would scan the horizon looking for a church, because All the things that she could know about the church, the one thing that she would certainly know, the one thing that she could count on, the church would be light in the world. The church was a purpose whose place, whose very purpose was to be a light in the darkness, a rest for the restless, a home for the lonely and weary. Its purpose was to be a faithful presence of love in all the absences of the world. Now listen to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, has equipped me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison doors to those who are bound in oppression, to comfort All who mourn. Sounds like a faithful presence of love in the midst of various absences, does it not? Lostness, restlessness, loneliness, addiction, bondage, mourning, grieving. The church is called. Our common vocation is to be the faithful presence of love in the midst of these and many more absences in the world. We are to be the place of welcome and openness and hospitality to an empty world 
that is in need of liberation and rest and welcome. We are to be that light in the world. Now, why are we to have that vocation? Why are we to be that light in the world? Because this, my friends, was Jesus' manifesto. Isaiah chapter 61 tells us what the Messiah was coming to do. I could have made this a Christmas sermon as well as an Advent sermon. Because this is exactly what Jesus came to do. What he inaugurated in his coming and what he will one day complete upon his return. See, it was Jesus' manifesto. And guess what the definition of the church is? The church is the body of Christ, the people of God that are by faith united to Christ. We're not the people who have just accepted something intellectually into our hearts. We are a people who are literally and yet mystically united to Christ by faith. That means we are actually the manifestation of the presence of Christ in the world. So if this was Jesus' vocation and we're united to Christ, guess what? Our vocation is to be patterned after his. See, this passage is all about the Messiah, Jesus' manifesto. And how do we know it was Jesus' manifesto? Well, because in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes back to his hometown. He's beginning his public ministry, and he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he goes where people are gathered to worship, to hear and come together to discuss the relevant things of life. And he stands up in front of everybody, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And in the words of biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he chose another of the great passages about the coming new age, the release from slavery, the new exodus and restoration after the exile, which formed the hope that sustained so much of Jewish life of his day. Jesus reads it and says, this day, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you know how radical that is? Jesus begins his public ministry. This is kind of like a politician, a president. You know, we all like to listen to a presidential inaugural address. Why? Because that inaugural address is going to say, this is what I'm about. Jesus stands up and reads his inaugural address. This is the beginning of his public ministry. This is Luke chapter 4. And he says, here's what I'm all about. In other words, I am the fulfillment of these promises of Scripture. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is all about me. This is my program. Church doesn't need a fancy business plan. Church doesn't need a fancy vision statement. You know what the church needs to do? Be about Jesus' manifesto. So let's take a look at Jesus' manifesto and let's break it down in three different ways. Let's break it down as to why we need Jesus' manifesto, what exactly is Jesus' manifesto, and then how to begin to live our lives patterned after Jesus' manifesto. Why we need it, what it is, how to live it. Okay? Why we need Jesus' manifesto. Pretty simple. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Why do we need Jesus' manifesto? Well, there you have a pretty good summation, don't you, of the human condition? Whether it's our own families, whether it's our neighborhoods, whether it's our community, or whether we're watching the nightly news, do we not see those who need good news brought to them because they're poor? Do we not see those who are brokenhearted? Do we not think the people of Mayfield, Kentucky, and Edwardsville, Illinois, and other places are brokenhearted this morning? Do we not need to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are in bondage, whether that be spiritual bondage, physical bondage, emotional bondage, psychological bondage? We have a summation of the human condition, and look at the whole range of this. Jesus deals with both body and soul. He doesn't have a dualism here. He comes for the poor, and that is both spiritual poverty and physical poverty. He deals with our spiritual brokenness. We proclaim good news to the poor. That's evangelism. We do that. But it's also economic brokenness. He deals with emotional brokenness. He deals with our blindness. He binds up the brokenhearted. Remember when we looked weeks ago at Isaiah 42? He deals gently. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus' manifesto is to not crush those who are discouraged, those who are in need of freedom or liberty, Jesus is not afraid to be tender. And then look with me at verse 2. In verse 2, he talks about he has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what does that mean? I have to admit here I'm totally indebted to Tim Keller on this one. And Tim Keller says, the person who comes and will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor What he's doing here is he's alluding to, if not directly quoting, from Leviticus 25. And what Leviticus 25 is talking about here is something known as the Jubilee. This messianic figure that Luke tells us is Jesus Christ is coming to say, I have come and I am coming to bring the Jubilee. That's the year of the Lord's favor. So what exactly is the Jubilee? Well, you've heard of the Sabbath, one day in seven, one day out of the week is to be a Sabbath rest. But see, not only was the Sabbath instituted as a Sabbath day, there was also such thing as a Sabbath year. One year in seven must be a Sabbath year. And the purpose of the Sabbath year was this. In the Sabbath year, all debts were forgiven, all indentured servants were set free, But in Leviticus 25, it pushes the envelope even further. It goes even further. Because in Leviticus 25, you have every seventh Sabbath year, every seventh, seventh, or every 49 years, the 50th year, was the Jubilee. And the whole purpose behind this was to make sure if you blow it, you get a second chance even economically. If you mess up and you blow it, you're not to stay in debt forever. Every seven years and every seventh seven years, 
everything is set free. A new beginning, a new creation, if you will, a new start. And now this Messiah shows up. Here comes Jesus talking about, no wonder he overturned tables. He overturns tables in everything he says just about. And he says, here is the jubilee. In my person, in my manifesto, this is what I'm all about. He is looking to bring body and soul problems together, dealing with individual problems, corporate problems. He is basically here to heal all the effects of sin. Listen again to N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says, if every seven years there's to be a sabbatical year in which the land lies fallow and people rest, the Jubilee is the sabbatical of sabbaticals, seven times seven years, producing a great celebration of release, forgiveness, and rescue from all that has crippled human life. This is what Jesus is announcing. He's, this is his inaugural address. And right, one of the reasons I love this is because he's an Englishman, so he's commenting on us Americans. And as an Englishman, he reminds his American readers, he says, we should be quite familiar with this since Leviticus 25.10, which says, you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants is inscribed on the Liberty Bell. I honestly didn't know that until I read that. I should have, but I didn't. We should be familiar, especially as Christians, as the church, with this concept of the Jubilee. And then look down with me at verses 3 and 4, where we see complete individual transformation. I will bring you a beautiful headdress, a crown of beauty, oil of gladness, garments of praise. You'll be called oaks of righteousness. See, this is not just symbolic. This is not just being declared righteous, which we'll get to down in verse 10 when he says you're covered and clothed with a robe of righteousness. This is organic. This is Jesus has not only declared you righteous, he is going to make you righteous. He is going to make you the people through whom this manifesto will be implemented. In verse 4, we see he is going to rebuild the cities. The Messiah comes and tells us, this is what I'm about to do. Now again, why do we need this manifesto? And again, nobody explains it quite like Tim Keller. He says, notice in verse 3, I will put on them a beautiful headdress. Notice what it says. Instead of what? Instead of ashes. I will put on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And Dr. Keller writes, he's thinking very literally. When somebody died, when anything went really wrong in your life, you didn't just put on black. What you did was put ashes. You got ashes out of the fireplace and you put them on your forehead. You poured it on your head. Not just a little like we sometimes see today on Ash Wednesday. You poured ashes on your forehead because you were making a statement, looking ugly, standing out, basically saying, you're like this. Life is like this. Life is going to ashes. And Dr. Keller says, what are ashes? He says, you put something in the fire and it knocks it all apart. And here's how he illustrates it. Here's how he illustrates it. And I read this illustration and I thought, oh boy, this hits home. I'll tell you why it hits home for a second. He says, think of a chicken in your oven. 
You can ask Evie. One of my phobias, one of the things I'm ter- I'm always asking her, is food fully cooked? Drives her nuts, and rightly so. I'll put that on me. But Dr. Keller says, think of a chicken in your oven. You bring the chicken out, you put it on the table. Why? It's too hot to eat. Can't eat it yet. Has to cool down. What's basically happening? It's losing energy. So you wait, say, 15 minutes. And he says, this is how life is. Leave it sit, it loses energy. He says, leave it for three hours and you won't want to eat it because it's losing even more energy and it becomes yucky. Leave it for three days, this is what hit home. And now it's a health hazard. He says, just let it be and it's going to ashes anyway. And then he says, look in a mirror. He says, you are going to ashes. Put yourself in a fire and what is happening? And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Yes, that's ultimate death, but do you realize we're dying every day? We're losing energy. We're going to ashes. The Bible says the whole world is burning in a flame of sin. It is sin that incoheres us, that disintegrates us. This is why we need Jesus' manifesto. Now, stay with me at verse 3, because what is Jesus' manifesto? See, Jesus comes to deal with all of the results of sin, and how does he do that? Verse 3 has three little words. It's repeated three times, and it's the word instead. Look with me again at verse 3. To grant, this is the Messiah. He's coming to do this, to grant those who mourn in Zion, mourning because their life is falling apart, it's going to ashes, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now, what is being said here is the principle of substitution. Jesus, on the cross, got our mourning, got our ashes, got our faint spirit. See, now we realize when we read back in Isaiah 52 and 53, and it talks about he was marred, disfigured, how we couldn't look upon him. Now we realize why he is not beautiful, because we have his beauty. He gets our ashes. Why are we joyful? Because we get his joy. He gets our mourning. You realize from the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He got our despair. He got our sense of abandonment. He got our feelings of loneliness. He deals with the ashes and the fire of sin because he personally dealt with every aspect of sin. Jesus' manifesto is to come and take our place. That's why I quote Tim Keller all the time that says, Jesus came to live the life we should have lived. He lived our obedience, devotion, love, truth, justice, righteousness in our place instead of us. And he died the death we should have died. He burned up. He was forsaken. 
We get his beauty, his joy. He gets our ashes. How do we begin to live this? How do we begin to live Jesus' manifesto? How do we become this church that the woman in my original story that I was quoting from Greg Thompson would look in our community and say, I don't want to look for a program, a government program. What I'm looking for is a church. How do we begin to look at that? Look with me down at verse 11. It says, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, in other words, the earth produces fruit, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord, so here's kind of this analogy, just as the earth brings forth its sprouts, just as a garden causes what is sown in it, the seeds to sprout up, so the Lord God, in like manner, will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let me ask you, friends, what is necessary for the earth to bring forth its fruit? Seed is sown, and what has to happen to that seed? That seed dies. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You realize that, and this is kind of ironical, the seed can either die underground and become something great, produce much fruit through its death, or it can hold on to its life, stay above ground, and it still does what? Die above the ground. It's going to die one way or the other, and we're going to die one way or the other. But we can either be our own master, our own Lord, hold on to our rights, hold on to ourselves, and see our life here kind of wither away, or we can die to ourselves, die to our control, die to our so-called rights. We can die to our will and basically then see, and who knows what will sprout up, the fruit. But the promise of this is that fruit will sprout up. This whole passage is saying, and this is how we do it, Jesus is the Messiah, the King who went under, who became ashes for you. Now, we obviously are not Jesus and are not going to compare... But our lives are to be formed and patterned after Jesus. We're the body of Christ, united to Christ. We are to live out the life of Christ in us. See, think about, go to verse 10. I told you I'd get to this declaring righteous. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means we get his beauty. You're seen that way. We get that robe of righteousness. It's what it means to be united to him and to be the body of Christ on earth. I will wrap you in a robe of righteousness. Do you know why we hold on to our own lives? We may try to deny this as much as we can, but do you know what we're doing? We're still trying to achieve a righteousness of our own so we don't have to die. So we don't have to die to ourselves. We're trying to hold on to our lives so we stay in control rather than, as Isaiah 12 said, trust and not be afraid. 
See, it's scary to do that, isn't it? Let's at least be honest with ourselves. It is scary to trust. You're giving up control to trust. You know, that's why many of us will believe in grace up to a point. And then it gets too radical. Because grace takes us out of control. If grace is grace and we are really given that crown of beauty, that beautiful headdress, we get Christ's beauty. Guess what that means? That means Christ can ask anything of us. And we intuitively know that. If he's our king, the king calls the shots. And he can ask anything of us. He can ask us to do something uncomfortable, something we don't want to do. He can ask us to live the jubilee. He can ask us to be the type of church that has welcome and hospitality. See, what is Jesus doing today? You get to, and this is, this is the very end of Advent, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 shows us how it's all going to finish. It's, the, it's like reading a great book and turn to the last page. You want to see how it ends? That's Revelation 21. And I encourage you, turn to the last page often, maybe daily. Because part of it, he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Sounds like a lot of comforting those who mourn and binding up the brokenhearted. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then John looks and he says, he who was seated on the throne, that's his vision of Jesus, says, I am making everything new. What an interesting use of verbs there. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. He will eliminate death. He will eliminate crying. He will eliminate pain. He hasn't yet. But what is he doing now? He's making all things new. He's inaugurated his manifesto, and do you know how he's doing that? Through you and I, through the church. We have the privilege of getting to participate in Jesus' manifesto of being a faithful presence of love. It doesn't mean we have to be extraordinary. It means we get to wipe away tears now, bind up the brokenhearted now, proclaim good news to the poor now. We get to rebuild the ancient cities now. Knowing the promise, there's going to be a day when it is fully completed. I am making all things new. Friends, let's be a faithful presence of love, holistic love in the midst of the absences of so many absences in the world. And Father, we thank you that you have called us to this vision, to this manifesto. Thank you that this is what Jesus has come to do. And we pray that we would remember that this is what Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, now as we come to the Lord's table, feed us with your body and with your blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully, we are trying to be good stewards and use up these little things that we got. So we'll be doing this for a couple more months because from what I've heard, we have several hundred of them left. And so 
This is less COVID-related and more being good stewards. But hopefully you got this from a deacon as you came in. And the Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not Lake Oconee's table. This is not my table. This is not the elder's table. This is the Lord's table. This is the Lord's supper that he is inviting his family to come and to proclaim what he has done for you. In the midst of all the chaos and the turmoil of the world, this is an opportunity to fellowship with the Prince of Peace. Don't we need peace in this world? And this is an opportunity for us to commune with the Prince of Peace. The text says that we are to recognize the body of the Lord, and that has at least two meanings. One, we have to recognize Jesus' body sacrificed for us as individuals, trusting in him, not ourselves, to be our Savior. And then we are also the body of the Lord. And so we need to check our relationships, make sure we're not harboring resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness, that we recognize that this is the church, that this is the body of Christ, that we are fellowshipping and we are communing and we are partaking in this means of grace with our brothers and sisters, our fellow family in Christ, for those for whom Christ has died. Maybe you've never received Christ before. I would encourage you, today may be the day of salvation. You may be here because Christ is calling you to himself. The invitation to come and partake is given to every baptized believer and those who are a part of any evangelical church. If that's you, you're invited to come. We want to open our arms. Jesus opens his arms to you. It's only if you do not believe that we'd ask you to let the elements pass by. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless these elements to his holy use. Father, this is ordinary bread, ordinary grape juice, but we pray that you sanctify them to our lives as both signs and seals of what you've done for us, to signify to us your work for us, and to seal, to encourage, to assure our hearts that we belong to you, to set us apart for you. So, Father, we give you thanks for this means of grace, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it.
Lord, thank you for giving us yourself, for taking our ashes so we could get your beauty, for substituting yourself in our place. And Father, thank you for this table that signifies to us what you've done and seals to our hearts, that we by faith receive this radical gift, the crown of beauty, the oil of gladness, that we are clothed in a robe of righteousness. Father, thank you for your grace empowering us to be more and more an Isaiah 61 church that loves holistically, that is a faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world. Thank you for who you are, your character, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's close out our service singing together. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Let's stand together. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.